Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. And I'm Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella journalist Brittany Rigby. Hello. And deputy editor, and I think it's the first time I've publicly used this new job title, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. That is the first time you've publicly used that new title. Well, congratulations. I guess we're announcing it here on the Mumbrella cast. <laughs> Thank you. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to Trinity P3's Darren Woolley about how the pitch process is being revolutionised by social distancing. But it requires a total rethink. It's not just doing the same process that you did before and just bring technology into the room. You actually have to rethink the process. Whether relationships between agencies and clients will change. I'm not sure they're going to run them in the next two weeks, but certainly people are thinking about it. And I think what we're going to see is another pitch-palooza coming out of the back end of this and what the agency landscape will look like at the end of the crisis. We are going to see some agencies fail because they are going to either not be able to continue trading, especially the smaller agencies. But first, the week's topics. Cuts at WPP, Bauer and Australian Radio Network. Is Pacific Magazines the worst acquisition of all time? Will House Rules help Seven staunch its bleeding ratings? And a big exit in Adland. So I'm afraid that it's been yet another week of job losses and reduced hours across the media and marketing world. The most recent COVID cutbacks have come at WPP, Foxtel and Australian Radio Network, among others. Um, Brittany, let's start with WPP, which you covered. This is actually the second round of cuts they've made, isn't it? Second, yes. I think it's part of kind of one extended conversation, though, which started last week. So WPP asked the CEO, Jens Monsis, uh, board directors, and also the senior leadership team to consider voluntarily reducing their salary. That was kind of part of a broader cost-cutting strategy that included four-day weeks and nine-day fortnights for other staff. Now, earlier in the week, uh, found out that they have since asked all staff to consider taking a cut. It will still be voluntary and WPP says that they understand that different employees will be in different circumstances and, you know, that decision has to has to be made. But it, they've also kind of extended other things that they announced last week. So, they started by saying that there would be a, a reduce of new hires and a reduction in salary increases. Now both of those have been frozen completely. So, yeah, the second stage in in the second week, I suppose. So do you think that means that in WPP's eyes the situation has actually changed or got worse even in the last week? Or is it is it something else? Is it because of what WPP are doing globally is now filtering through to Australia? What 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 do we think has led to this new round of stuff so quickly? Yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? Because uh, you wonder whether or not this was always the plan and they were just kind of staging it gradually 
so that externally, you know, they have asked uh, the CEO and, you know, bigger employees earning bigger paychecks to kind of take the brunt first or whether or not things have actually worsened in the last week and they've realised that, you know, crunching the numbers or maybe just seeing who did stick their hand up last week out of those, you know, key executives and board directors, whether or not that just wasn't going to be enough. Viv, these voluntary pay cuts um, where people are asked to put their hand up for it, I'm I'm guessing that if you would like your career to thrive at WPP, there's probably only one correct answer. Look, not just at WPP in general, in that uh, I've spoken to a number of people across the industry who've had to be the ones to tell their staff this week and last that they're taking a 20% pay cut. And the message, whilst it is you are allowed to say no, it has a lot of implications behind it in that if you say no and then the financial situation gets worse, realistically, who are you going to cut? The person who said yes or the person who said no? There's so much implied politics and pressures associated with these decisions. So if people can, they're probably going to say, look, yes, this sucks because having 80% of my pay is better than having 0% of my pay or the alternative of cutting 20% of the workforce. So some people will perhaps have to say no, but again, there's the politics and pressures associated with looking like, you know, the bad team member, the greedy team member, the person who's not in it for the long term. So I can totally understand why nobody wants to take a hit, but I can also understand how there's a lot more than just the money on the line in doing so. Now, Britt, WPP can be quite a generous employer at times. Their annual report for WPP Australia came out this week. Uh, clearly referred to things that had happened before the current crisis, but very unfortunate timing. Uh, it gave some clues about how the top management at WPP Australia and New Zealand are remunerated. Now, uh, among the top dogs, Jens Monzies and John Stedman. How did they go in the last uh, in the last year in question? Look, I think it's fair to say that Jens and Steady are probably two people at WPP who would be in a position to take a pay cut of some sort and could probably afford to weather that. Jens Monsees has a fixed salary of $1.5 million. Last year, he also received a one-off payment of $250,000 instead of a bonus. That was kind of among other things to recognise that at BMW Group, he would have, you know, qualified for bonuses and other entitlements that he passed up by accepting this job. He can also bill WPP AUNZ up to $250,000 per year for his children's education, and he gets one annual trip back home to Germany for him and his family. Stedman, on the other hand, had a fixed salary of, I think it was $950,000 last year. Yes. And the report said that he achieved above his target, so he also got a $150,000 annual bonus. On top of that, half was paid in cash and the other half in shares. So, And I'd love to know what that target was because it wasn't a great year for WPP, if I recall correctly. There was a there was a lot of cost cutting, and the share price didn't do great. So I'm 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 wondering what the target actually could possibly have been to be worth one hundred and fifty. It's a good question, particularly when I think WPP has been quite forthright in saying that the results last year were really disappointing. They weren't happy 
with them and they've specifically pointed to account losses as being one of the really big reasons why they didn't do as well as they hoped. So you're right about the timing of the report as well. Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't look great the week after you have said, okay, we're starting to introduce cuts, even if that's at an executive level, and we would like you to consider cutting back your hours and being in that awkward position of whether or not you can afford to say no, both in terms of your career and financially. And then for last year's report to kind of land and and contain these financial details. So yeah, not, not a great look, but difficult for WPP in that that isn't necessarily reflective of this year and what they're going through right now. And Viv, to be fair, um, annual reports have to come out at a certain time of year, etc. You know, there's a there's a fairly narrow window, so there's no actual good time to send out something like that. Yeah, look, there are so many obligations of being an ASX-listed company and what you have to report to the market and when. So I don't think it was a case of Jens and John Stedman trying to spruik, hey, look, what a fantastic personal financial year we've had. It's just the timings and calendars around financial reporting. I'm sure they would have preferred that people weren't talking about this at a time when they're asking staff to take a significant financial hit. Well, Hannah, we also wrote about cuts at Foxtel this week, and um, I can't think of a a worse day that Foxtel can have had than the number of people they they have had to let go. Yeah, you would be uh, echoed by CEO Patrick Delaney there, who called it one of the worst weeks in Foxtel's history. Massive numbers we're seeing here. Uh, 200 jobs have been cut, so that's complete redundancies, and then a further 140 team members have been stood down. Um, they'll be given an extra two weeks of leave. They'll be given the opportunity to take all their annual leave and they'll be given the opportunity to take uh, leave in advance as well. But a lot of this we are seeing across the um, Fox Sports and KO businesses. Of course, at the moment, it's kind of tough for them to do very well considering there is no sport happening. Um, So it's kind of put them in a bit of a tough position, I suppose. Delaney has kind of said, look, you know, we're already in the process of pivoting the business. Foxtel's been really uh, quite vocal about the fact it's on a transformation over the last two years. And he said that this is kind of, you know, a bit of a fast forward, but he kind of hinted that maybe this sort of thing was to be expected anyway, and that perhaps, you know, somewhere down the track, some of these jobs would have gone anyway. However, I think obviously not to this scale. Um, It's kind of interesting though, because, you know, they've said it's all until the end of June for now for those stand-downs, but then you do wonder, like, if sport doesn't come back in the way they're expecting it to, are we likely to see more of that 140 get made redundant in the future? I'm not really sure even Foxtel knows at this point. And I guess the question I find myself asking with the 200 redundancies as well is how will that impact on the product? Because it's a subscription product. So if it becomes a less good product because you've just lost 200 members of staff, does that make it even harder to retain subscribers? And I suppose the other version of that is, and if it doesn't impact the product, then 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 were they overstaffed in the first place? Yeah, I think it's probably somewhere between the somewhere in the middle there because I think Delaney is kind of hinting that perhaps they were overstaffed to begin with. Um, however, he did make a really he made a really important point in his letter to staff saying, you know, the service has never been more important than it is at the moment. There has been a lot of whispers around the traps that Foxtel have been struggling with people cutting the service, you know, that maybe a 
$65 a month or whatever it is, Foxtel membership is not on the top of people's wish lists at the moment. So I would imagine if you're in Delaney's shoes, the worst thing you can possibly do now is make the product any worse than it is. In fact, you've got to obviously focus going the other way. So I think, um, yeah, they'll be doing everything they can to make sure these aren't the types of roles that are going to impact that. Well, Viv, cuts more widely across the media. You wrote this week about uh, Pay Cuts Australian Radio Network, owned by HTNE. Um, so, if I've understood it right, the staff are being asked to effectively take a twenty percent pay cut by working twenty percent less hours, so having a day cut. But on-air talent are only being cut by ten percent, which, on the face of it, doesn't seem particularly egalitarian. Look, on the face of it, when you think about people who might be on relatively low to mid-level wages, you know, $60,000 or $70,000 a year, a 20% cut for them has huge implications in rental and property markets like Sydney. And when you think about the multi-million dollar headline-grabbing deals that Carl Sanderlands and Jackie Henderson have, for example, and they only have to take a 10% hit you can imagine the sorts of emotions and calls for injustice that that would cause. My understanding is that ARN's rationale here is that back-end staff can cut their days. They can move to an 80% working week, so a four-day week. But the Carl and Jackie O breakfast show on KISS FM in Sydney has to go out five days a week. They can't have Kyle not in one day, although, you know, he does take his fair share of sick days, but we you can't. You beat me to it. <laughs> I sort of heard it as I said it and I was like, wait, no, that doesn't quite work. But in theory, we can't give Kyle every Monday off and Jackie every Friday off because then the Kyle and Jackie O show isn't producing what it's supposed to be producing for consumers and for brands that advertise with that show. That's the rationale. I'd love to see how it actually plays out in practice. I'd love to see the negotiations with all those on-air talent about taking a 10% cut but still doing the show every day. But I can sort of understand that they have to cut them in some way because if they left the talent on the same pay, it wouldn't work. But they can't sort of ask them to do too much for free because they just won't do it. And Hannah, sticking with uh, the wider radio industry, Commercial Radio Australia, which is the industry's peak body, they're asking the government for a bailout, which is something you've written about this week. Yeah, they are. They've asked for a crisis relief package um, to kind of stem the tide of issues they're facing following, obviously, coronavirus. Um, It's interesting because... So the government has already issued $5 million for regional media, which is part of a much wider uh, pledge that they've done, which has taken across, I think it's across 18 months. Um, So it isn't even new for this, but they've brought $5 million forward out of that. But the radio industry has said that they're actually not entitled to that and that's all going to publishers. So they're not seeing any of that money. Um, And Joan Warner, who's the CEO of Commercial Radio Australia, um, she has said that it's deeply disappointing that they're not getting access to that money and she's kind of put forward a whole bunch of options for the federal government to improve commercial radio's chances of getting through this as unscathed as anyone can expect to get through this. Um, She's asking for more spend from government. She's asking for them to pivot some of the spend away from the digital platforms, the big tech companies, and put it into radio. And she's also asking for some of the um, 
some of the restrictions on advertising and regional content that happens across radio to be uh, lessened over this time. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think <laughs> I think if you were to ask a lot of media companies if they expect the government to be helpful during this time, they maybe haven't seen any example of that yet. Um, it doesn't seem like anyone's particularly happy with what the government's doing. So I don't know whether CRA should be holding their breath, but it'll be interesting. Next, will Bauer go through with its purchase of PacMags? Are you a small business that's been significantly disrupted by COVID-19? Then maybe it's time to get involved in Mumbrella's Win a Business Boost competition for a chance to win an advertising package with Mumbrella worth up to $50,000. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash business boost for entry details and get involved today. Entries close on April the 17th. Bauer Media is really starting to look like it's suffering from a nasty case of buyer's remorse over its impulse to splurge on acquiring Pacific magazines from Seven West Media. Uh, Hannah, there are a couple of plot twists this week. Where are we at? I don't know. How much time have we got? (laughs) Um, (laughs) There have been every single day something changes in this deal. So obviously we'd all heard the rumours that um, Bauer was maybe trying to find a way out of this deal, um, that maybe they wanted to pay 50% less for this deal, that maybe they were going to completely pull up stumps in Australia just to get out of this deal. And and just to be clear, initially they'd agreed to pay $40 but that was before the economy (laughs) went south. Before the now times, yeah, they last year signed a deal for $40 million, which was sitting with the ACCC uh, for approval. That approval came at the end of March. And at the time, a lot of the headlines were like, well, is Pacific Magazine still worth $40 million given what's currently happening? Um, But we saw this week some particularly interesting changes. What happened first was uh, Pacific Magazine suddenly popped up in the New South Wales Supreme Court listings um, and it was taking Bauer to court. When we asked about this, we were told it's perfectly normal. This happens every time you sell a business to another (laughs) business. You've got to take it to court at the end of it. It's totally fine. Well, luckily... Luckily, we have a qualified lawyer with us on the uh, <laughs> on the podcast, so um, it's probably a good chance to maybe test the credibility of of that <laughs> indication. Is it everyday business that when you're when when someone's buying something from you, you you, you might just have to routinely take them to court? Uh, what would your view on that be, Brittany? I think I've made my view on that pretty clear already. I said it's <laughs> hilarious that they uh, they came back with that because. Would you sell your business if you thought you were going to then end up in court at the end of it every time and be lumped with, you know, huge legal fees on top of that? I mean, it's interesting to me because obviously, you know, they've engaged lawyers and they're now, you know, tied up in the court process. I don't know if either party really has the money to be doing that right now. Well, Hannah, that's a good point. And it wasn't even the final twist of the week on this particular saga. No, it wasn't. So by the time I'd finished writing that story, we had an ASX announcement from Seven who were saying that they'd heard from Bauer and that Bauer was definitely going to go through with it. Then this morning we got another ASX announcement and this time the deal is definitely going ahead, but it has been pushed back. So in theory, it was due to be completed today. 
but now it won't be completed until the 1st of May. So they've got a little bit more time in here, but apparently it's still guaranteed to be going ahead. Um, I actually spent some of today speaking to somebody who works at Bauer, who will remain anonymous, and they have said, A, morale over there is not great at the moment, as you would expect, but they also apparently did have a meeting today where they were told, as of the 1st of May, Bauer will become the owner of Pacific Magazines, and it's definitely going ahead but they still don't have any update on what that means for staffing. They still don't have any update on what that means for titles. So I think, you know, it is all still planned to go ahead, but there still doesn't really seem to be any plan. It's interesting that 1st of May is the date that they're throwing around too, because I think when we first saw the court case pop up in the registry, the directions hearing was set down for the 29th of April, it may have been. That since changed to be the 17th of April. So if you think that you've got a deal that is locked in and is effective from the 1st of May, why are you rocking up to the Supreme Court virtually, probably, on the 17th of April for a directions hearing for a court case that you've initiated? Look, and this is where it gets a little bit nerdy, but one of the things I know, Viv, you've you've written about it in Best of the Week, and I think we may even talked about it on the podcast last week, this question of parent company guarantees, the fact that we've got Bauer here in Australia, but the parent company is in Germany. And of course, in recent days, we've seen Bauer close its New Zealand operation. So it suddenly became a really big part of the saga and quite important was whether when they made the agreement, they insisted that there was a parent company guarantee that Bauer Germany would effectively pay the money if for some reason Bauer Australia fell over, which would have looked like a ridiculous eventuality when the deal was done. But um, sometimes these guarantees get put in and sometimes they don't. And I I believe, uh, Hannah and Viv, there have been different speculation whether there was or wasn't a parent company guarantee. And did we, did we ever get to the bottom of it? Look, I don't have the answer yet. Obviously, if Bauer packs up and leaves Australia as it did New Zealand and there was no backing from Germany, there was no guarantee from Germany, it will be very hard for Seven West Media and its CEO, James Warburton, to chase down that $40 million and force them to buy an Australian business when they're not even running an Australian business anymore. So I think that will be a a key question. And I've actually heard both versions of events, that there is a parent company guarantee and that there isn't. But I imagine if this does end up getting dragged through the courts, we'll definitely find out. And then more widely, and Hannah, you've alluded to this a little bit, obviously uh, staff at Bauer aren't loving life at the moment. How do we think the staff at Pacific Magazines must be feeling? Because they the ones who actually survived not being made redundant before the sale were very much promised a better life over at Bauer, but they must kind of be beginning to give the impression that they're they're not the most loved of people or most wanted of people. <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, this question's about everybody, isn't it? Because we're still not really sure if Pacific Magazine CEO Gerard Roberts is doing great in his role as CEO or if he has moved across to his new role at Seven Um, because I think when he was announced as Chief Digital Officer that was kind of oh this will happen and then the sale will go through and that will be fine and it will obviously move on without a CEO but now that it's still there I don't really know if it even has a leader. Also I've heard some things from inside those walls that people 
morale is not great and that people are kind of turning up doing the bare minimum they have and spending the rest of the day at the pub, which they're not doing anymore, but that's what they were doing. Um, but it's the same on Bowers' side, you know, they're doing the exact same thing because they also don't know if their jobs are going to be continuing. Also, last week, I think it was, Bauer ruled that there was going to be no more freelancers working there and that all freelance contracts would be ended, which is fine in theory, except the redundancies that have rolled through Bauer as well have meant that the business doesn't really function without freelancers at this point. So between the two companies, there's barely enough staff to get everything out the door as it is and the staff that are there don't have great morale so you do wonder at this point even when they do come together how much is really going to be left in the rubble keep listening until the end of the podcast to hear our brand new sponsored segment audio diaries from audio specialist agency eardrum ralph van dyke founder of eardrum talks to some of australia's leading cmos about the growing role audio is playing in their brand development today you'll hear his chat with lisa ronson chief marketing officer of coles next seven found a quiet night to launch house rules but did it work So after a last moment shift to avoid going up against the end of Nine's Married at First Sight, Seven launched House Rules this week. Hannah, how did it fare? Well, considering they pivoted it to avoid Married at First Sight, it still didn't fare that well. Um, It premiered to 679,000 Metro viewers. Um, It's kind of interesting, though, because when you look back House Rules hasn't been doing great for a little while now. So that actually, you know, wasn't even its lowest launch. It launched worse, I think, in 2018. So it kind of isn't the fizzle that we would necessarily have been expecting. But I think maybe without Married at First Sight there, Seven were hoping it was going to do better. It hasn't picked up since then either. There have only been four episodes so far, but they've all sat below that figure. So it definitely isn't blowing anybody out of the water. Well, look, um, rating season and non-rating season is kind of more academic this year than it's ever been before. We are in the Easter non-rating season, but we are also seeing uh, 10 move ahead of that with the launch of uh, uh, MasterChef. Now, I, I always struggle with all of the kind of the, 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 the different variants. Is this MasterChef All-Stars? Am I correct in thinking, Hannah, that's where we are now? Well, it is. You are correct that it is an all-star season. am I thinking season. of Survivor? I mean, we should always be thinking of Survivor. But you are correct that it's an all-star season. However, I don't think they're billing it as that, It's which seems weird to me. It felt to me like maybe they should shove all-stars all over it. But I think actually you're just meant to work out from the promos that everybody's back and they're back to win. Um, but also the all-stars format part of it, we've also got the new judges coming in. So there's a lot happening this season. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see how it does on Monday. And it launches on Monday, doesn't it? Which seems time to resurrect a Mumbrella guessing game that we haven't played for a little while, where we challenge everybody. And and Zoe, I'm going to give you fair warning so you can get your microphone on in a minute. Zoe does the production. Uh, We're all going to take a guess at what the Average Metro ratings for the first episode of MasterChef are. Before then we'll we do uh, that, Tim, can I provide some numbers so that everybody's on equal footing before No, they... that's what I was doing. Damn it, Vivian. 
Oh, okay. So as I was going to cheat I'm by a, having all the other ones. <laughs> I'm a transparent game player and Hannah is a sneaky snake. So <laughs> I just think it's worth um, for, for the listeners at home as well to know that MasterChef in 2018 premiered to 890,000 Metro viewers. It, it was at the time up against House Rules on 7 and The Voice on 9. Then last year it dropped to 715,000, which was up against Lego Masters, which was pulling over 1 million. This year its premiere won't be up against Lego Masters. That's still a few weeks away. So it will only be up against A Current Affair and RBT on 9 and House Rules on 7. So there's a lot of factors at play there. It doesn't have Lego Masters to contend with, but as Hannah mentioned, it is a new judging lineup and it is Easter Monday which is a bit of a funny day to launch. Well um, thank you very much for that context and the other thing is I guess everyone else can play along if you want to uh, join in and have a guess and there is no prize whatsoever then <laughs> maybe tweet us before Monday with the hashtag ratings game would that do do you reckon as a hashtag do we like that? Sure. You're a social media mastermind, Tim. Oh, thanks, Viv. You almost sounded like you meant it. So, yes, tweet us with the hashtag ratings game if you want to have a guess. But, yes, I'm going to uh, go around the team and ask everyone for their guesses. Hannah, your guess. Um, I'm going to go straight in with 700,000. Vivian. Okay, everyone at home can't see this, but I made a face because, and I can prove this on the video to the team, that I wrote down 699. So I'm not <laughs> undercutting Hannah. That was genuinely my guess and I'm not changing it. There we go. That's Viv's guess. Uh, Brittany, yours. I feel like I'm very optimistic compared to these two. I feel like the context that Viv gave plus the fact that everyone's at home watching TV and everyone's into cooking again. Look, I'm going to be the Easter positive fairy and say... (laughs) Not the Easter bunny. The Easter bunny is far too predictable. Um, I'm going to say 950. Look, I, I have faith. I, I don't know if I'll watch, but I think other people will. <laughs> I, I wonder if we would have been able to get anyone at 10 to guess 9.50, but, um, wow. but there you go. And Zoe, your guess, please. Well, I was also going to give them sort of a isolation, boredom kind of viewership boost, but I was thinking more like 7.35, not well, 9.50. So I think Brittany's really gone out strong look, there. We haven't heard Tim's guess yet, but at the moment, if it's above 7.35, I well, not above, but I, I have a good chance of winning at the moment. You've all gone pretty close. You've grouped together. Yeah, and I'm going to play slightly tactically now. 7.90, sneaking there in the middle. <laughs> Another another sneaky snake on the team. <laughs> Two sneaky snakes and one. What was it? Easter positivity I think theory. That was it. That well, we will um, <laughs> we'll re we'll revisit next week and find out who was right. Next, a big Adland departure. So a spot of late breaking news as we were recording the Umbrella cast, MNC Saatchi's Australian CEO, James Leggett, is departing. Um, Vivian, you, you have the inside track on that one. 
I I do. I believe staff were told around 4pm as we record this on Thursday the 9th of April, right before we head into the long weekend of Good Friday. Speaking of timings of inconvenient announcements, one's always suspicious of the taking out the trash announcements as they're known in the PR world. Yes, look, it is something that means, you know, it's not going to lead a newsletter on Friday because the trade press simply won't have one. It's going to give staff time to stew on it on their own time on over the long weekend. It's not necessarily going to disrupt productivity and all of those things, but it is worth bearing in mind that MNC Saatchi Australia, whilst a somewhat independent operation, is still tied to its UK counterpart. So I imagine that there's timings and politics and whatnot going on there because the announcement has come out of the UK rather than here. So that's probably a part of it as well. But there's no doubt that they'll get less attention and less coverage by doing it at 4pm before a long weekend. So where is he off to? Look, my understanding is uh, he's off to nowhere, uh, that he'll be on gardening leave for quite some time uh, and isn't in a position where he needs to immediately jump to another job. So... Normally, I'd say he's probably going to play a lot of golf, go on a holiday and do all sorts of fun things. But unfortunately for James, his lengthy and luxurious uh, gardening leave has come during lockdown. So I'm not, I'm not sure what he'll do with his time. I'm sure he will reappear in the market, but I don't think it will be until late 2021. And do we know who's replacing him? Yes, we do. It is Justin Graham, who's currently the CSO, so Chief Strategy Officer and Partner at MNC Saatchi. He's been there since 2014, so he will be stepping into the CEO position. So he's a strategist by background, I think. I um, came across from Droga 5, uh, if I understand correctly, um, which is an interesting move as well, isn't it? Because they're, you know, but I don't know if it's... Uh, how much we can we can take it as an agency truism, but there's always that claim that strategists don't make great CEOs. Look, I think we'll have to evaluate Justin's performance on Justin's performance, but you are right that he's a, a strategy background. He was a senior planner at Leo Burnett. He was global strategy lead at BBDO, chief strategy officer at Droga5, and then came across to MNC in a strategic role. But I think at a time like this, I can see why they've promoted internally. Uh, It's definitely a risky time to be shaking up leadership, but I think they've known for a while that James is going to depart and it's one of those things where it's like, do you draw it out and have somebody making decisions at a key crisis time who isn't actually going to be accountable for those decisions, who isn't actually going to be there to see the ramifications and to see the impact it has on the business, its staff and its clients. So maybe they sort of wanted to accelerate this change so that Justin is making the decisions in a crisis and actually has to be accountable for them and has that sort of responsibility and that that long-term projection and long-term involvement. Look, and I suppose, as you say, it all comes in the context of being a a much bigger global company with its strongest office being the the UK, which is where it's listed on the stock exchange, um, it's been a pretty tumultuous 
few months for them though even even before the kind of the downturn with the lock-ins there were there were there was some sort of i seem to remember reporting fiasco but even six months ago mc Saatchi was worth about 400 million quid which i guess we're getting on for almost a billion dollars get give or take maybe certainly 800 million dollars now it's worth about a tenth of that just over the last six months so this is like many this is a company which has really shrunk in value yeah, MNC Saatchi Australia is somewhat isolated. It's majority owned by the listed business in the UK, but also has local shareholders and relies on local clients such as Tourism Australia and Woolworths. But over in the UK, it's definitely been a, a debacle. There was, as you flagged, Tim, a, a problem with its auditing and, and issues in December, uh, it was audited by PwC, which forced it to make £11.6 million worth of adjustments to its 2018 and 2019 financial results. Its issues included understating project costs, listing obsolete assets on the balance sheet and overstating the value of assets. So even before COVID-19 and even before the economic headwinds that we're facing in 2020, it was in a a really interesting spot and had to do a a restructure and all sorts of things for the calendar year to sort of make up for those accounting issues that it was facing in the UK. Well, later, Viv and I will be talking to Darren Woolley about how marketers are reacting to the virus lockdown. And next, we have our sponsored segment, Audio Diaries, created by audio specialists Eardrum. This week, Ralph Van Dyke talks to Lisa Ronson, the Chief Marketing Officer of Colts. Hello, Mumbrella Cast lovers. Welcome to another audio diary brought to you by Eardrum. Today, we have uh, CMO royalty in the house. Uh, Lisa Ronson has worked across most of Australia's blue chip brands, including, here we go, Carlton and United, Visa, Telstra, David Jones, Westpac, Tourism Australia, and her current role as Chief Marketing Officer at Coles. Well, that's all I've got time for today. No. (laughs) (laughs) A very impressive LinkedIn you have, Lisa. And um, also, I've missed out that you were voted Most Innovative Marketer, won CMO of the Year, you've won Campaign of the Year, including Titanium at Cannes for Dundee, Son of a Legend. Lisa, I'm not worthy. Um, (laughs) And there's an awful lot we could talk about right now as you navigate coals through a pandemic. Um, But this is an audio diary, so we'll try our best to stay on brief if possible. Now, Coles is a brand that really has used audio branding to good effect. And uh, the first question would be, how would you describe the role audio plays in your communications? Look, I think it immediately sets the scene, whether that's a happy or sad scene. Mm. Um, It it immediately lets a listener know who the message is is from, particularly with brands and when it goes for marketing. So whether that's Down Down for Coles, um, the classic ABC News intro soundtrack, Mm. Nine's Wide World of Sports, I mean, there's just so many that you immediately know who the message is from and puts you in the right situational mindset. And what, what, what do you think audio can do more effectively than, say, a visual medium? It's just, it's such an emotional uh, concept for people and nothing, as most, you know, good marketers will tell you, nothing drives consumer behaviour more than emotion. Mm. Actually, when you launched that Down Down track, the status quo track in, I think it was 2012. 
It was such a powerful and effective weapon in your category. Uh, why do you think that resonated so well with Australians? I think that's because Coles established the connection and the, the emotional link to it very, very early on, um, also with the red hand. Yeah. So it's in the introduction of an, another symbol that links the brand to that song. And, and most people really liked the song. The campaign was probably a bit polarising as it went through towards the end. But in the beginning, I think everyone really embraced it and really loved it because you knew it was for Coles. It was very well established as Down Down. That meant uh, a price message for consumers. It yeah. had really strong brand linkages from the start. And it, it achieved that that in a one-word equity that I think Morris Saatchi always talks about, that, you know, that down just immediately synonymous with, with Coles, which is hugely powerful association. Oh, it was very, and it, was, it really became a category motivator of, of value. It represented value to, to Australian consumers and that, that's very, very powerful. It was everyday low prices. Yeah, and um, that, yeah it, true. Yeah. And, then, and then you had um, your largest competitor even return fire with their own version with, when they did the cheap, cheap, based on the rock and robin, um, that Bobby Day song. I guess, you know, when a competitor responds like that, it probably tells you you're doing the right thing. <laughs> well, I think so. And I think there's no doubt that's down, down changed, you know, Australia's supermarket advertising overnight. So it's, it's unsurprising that um, Woolworths came back with that. Let's move on from music to voice. Now, Coles has been very consistent with its use of of Curtis Stone. At Coles, we understand why so many Australians are concerned. What do you think he brings to the dinner table? <laughs> Excuse my terrible oh. pun. <laughs> uh, he, oh, Curtis's voice in our radio ads and in our, you know, TV and our social and other other mediums, it's immediately says Coles and it immediately um, says fresh, it says quality, it says Australian and it and also says friendly. Yeah. And they're all the, the components that we want to um, be part of our brand personality. And so he, he fits that just so well and he's really trustworthy and he's a nice person. And so that really comes through in, in everything he does. Yeah. It's not, it's not unlike, what, you know, what we did at Tourism Australia with Paul Hogan. Yeah. What would be the disadvantages for using a celebrity? For me, it's where it goes wrong is when it's there's not, the alignment with the brand. If they if the ambassador is really just a transactionally paid ambassador and doesn't really live the values of the brand, then consumers, uh, particularly Australians, they're very they're kind of BS meter yeah. goes up to say you're just getting paid. Yeah. You know you, your heart's not in this. Um, and no matter how great their voice could be, it's always going to fall flat. Sometimes it can be, uh, when we've suggested investing in a consistent brand voice, um, the, the concern has been just accessibility. How are we going to make sure that this person is going to be available to us? But you've been quite clever in, in being able to record a number of messages with Curtis and then have a retail sounding voice to do the yes. heavy lifting and the sort of more, re, more regular updates. That's right, and there's a consistency to that voiceover artist or the few voiceover artists that we do use, and that builds familiarity. And again, back to the point I was making before, you instantly know it's Coles, and that's really important, particularly in mediums like radio. Mm. 
Moving on from voice to audio logos, we're, we're currently developing Sonic logos for three established national brands right now. Why do you think that it, this is now on the radar for a lot of CMOs? Look, I think it, it goes back to because people, they know the power of music and I think marketers really understand that power and the emotion that I, I was referencing before and I think that number of CMOs leaning into that is just getting bigger by the day mm. um, because music creates emotion and emotion makes us, it changes our behaviour and that's ultimately as marketers what we're trying to trying to achieve. So music is often, um, and sonic and um, the way sounds are made up is often a great shortcut. I mean, I think one of the most famous examples in my mind of uh, is a three-second mnemonic that was developed for Intel Inside. The downside for people like me who you know make a living out of creating this stuff is a camp uh, like Intel was perfect for Intel. Yes. What we find is that a lot of brands go, we need an audio logo. We go, great, and they go, and they keep wanting to make it sound like bloody <laughs> Intel. Exactly. That's the classic marketing. I'll have what she's having. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's uh, often that happens with, um, you know, a lot of creative directors will share that pain with you. <laughs> and I think that the, 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 the key is to make that audio logo say something about the brand as opposed to just be synonymous with it. That's exactly right. It's got to have meaning. It can't just have uh, a correlation or a connection that, then has to deliver something that's meaningful to to the customer. Mm, we're working with the the Holzbroschers and the principals to uh, to go through that, and it's very interesting to see how similar our processes are to, to to end up with one thing in vision, one thing in audio. Oh, absolutely, because you know brands are you know in in a lot of ways they're they're like people, and you have to go through similar processes to bring out that personality, bring out that right tone, bring out the warmth, the the authenticity, it's the same thing. Mm. Which brands do you think have, have done it well other than yours <laughs> in Australia? Which ones do you think have, do it well? Uh, look, I think Telstra do a, a good job. I think, you know, I worked on BB for a, a period of time mm. and, you know, the voiceover of John Mellion and that the music of the VB ad, I mean, lo- well long before I, I worked on the brand, it was one of the best examples, I think, in in Australian history of, of using the power of music to really bring to life and the voiceover. Absolutely. The position of that brand just beautifully. I understand there's an interesting story to do with VB because the original VB theme, and it may even be John Mellion's voice as well, was originally used for a different beer, Goldtop. This is back in the mid-60s, uh, but Goldtop is uh, brewed by Belimba. Uh, which is a completely different beer. Have a listen to this bit of archive and uh, you'll see what I mean. Painting the house, doing a good job. The brother drops in with her old mate Bob. How about a gold top? A beauty. Good old gold top. She's a beauty, all right. Not too flaming heavy or too light. The big, big beer. Gold top. It's a beauty. And probably the first example of an ad that's been bleeped, as far as I know. <laughs> you know, I remember when I first started, it was, this is the most highly guarded voice 
and music. So if the agency burnt down, it was in a safe so that it could (laughs) be continually used because it was so very, very powerful. In your role uh, at Tourism Australia, were there any voices or music that were carried through the whole campaign? Yeah, definitely. I think for for that one, it was the the voiceover was, or the music, sorry, was really, it just was the Australian accent. Mm. Um, the Australian accent was a, a brand linkage directly to Paul Hogan and that obviously links so directly to Australia and the meaning is our friendly, relaxed people and our personality. So, yeah. you know, we really leaned into that and it was very much about the Australian accent that mm. was the, um, for want of a better term, the musical shortcut. In fact, if you could actually be interesting to explore an audio logo for Australia that was just just yeah. a, a word said in the really strong Australian accent. That would be really interesting, actually. Yeah. Uh, Coles invests heavily on radio as well. What what role does that medium play in the marketing mix? It's really important because it's it's situationally and time relevant. So, you know, when we talk about lowering, lowering the cost of breakfast or lunch or dinner or entertaining, radio can deliver those messages at the right time to the right set of customers. Mm. And so for us, it's critically important in getting our messages through, whether they be value-based, price-based, quality-based. And we're fortunate that we um, have used music a lot currently and in our history so we know what works and how to establish ourselves from the outset because on radio you can't wait to reveal yourself after 27 seconds. You've missed the opportunity. So whether that be Curtis's voice or our current track, which is the best of my love, from the very, very beginning people immediately know it's Coles and that's really important when you're in that medium. Mm. Before we carry on, we'll just have a quick listen to remind everyone of what that track is. Proctors in the US has increased its spend on radio quite considerably in the last couple of years. Do you think Australian FMCG brands will follow suit? I do, actually. And I think I haven't seen the the most recent numbers, but I think to my point before, you can really make it for us where our customers are coming in through right throughout the course of a day, searching for, you know, different meal times and things like that and convenience. Radio is so you know, contextually relevant yeah. that I think a lot of brands will realise the power of it and, you know, test and learn and have some fun with it mm, yeah. um, and, you know, see see what see what the results are. And you, it's pretty much instantaneous, so you can get the results pretty quickly. There's a um, supermarket in Canada called Sobeys that uh, I often refer to when I'm talking to clients about price and product advertising. It's, it's a really lovely example of how to do it in a more interesting way. My daughter's new boyfriend honks when he comes to pick her up. He just sits there and honks, and he has a tattoo on his arm with the name of his last girlfriend. There's a name for guys like that. Turkey. Fresh grade air utility, $1.49 a pound. Sobeys, ready to serve. So did you ask for the raise? No, not today. We were, we were really, really slammed, really busy. Okay, you're going to ask tomorrow? Well, no, actually, I have a really big meeting tomorrow. I'm booked up all day long. Okay. So next week? No, my boss is out of town. Chicken, $1.49 a pound. This week at Sobeys. So that's awesome. I love that. Personality. Yeah, exactly. And I think that just takes the, you know, the, the what we know to be the right medium 
to talk about this stuff, but flips it on its head with a, with a piece of really interesting creative that really cuts through in an ad break. Yeah, that's right. And it's like nobody hates radio ads. They just hate bad ones. Exactly right. Um, just to finish, uh, has Coles explored some of the, I guess, emerging audio platforms such as podcasts and streaming and, and voice, you know, um, voice-activated speakers and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've... Um, we look at all of these things all of the time and, you know, to my earlier point, some are relevant to our brand and some are less relevant and sometimes these things become more relevant at different points in time. Yeah, and I guess once you in, as, as you have those audio assets, they can be incorporated into, into these new platforms and even if it is internal communications, just to have that, that brand consistency going through everything is, is, is something you can do because you've invested in those assets. That's right. And music on a day-to-day basis is really important, like Coles Radio. Exactly right. Oh, I hear you. Hey, Lisa, look, thank you so much for your time and for no sharing problem. your audio insights. It's much appreciated. No problem at all. And if you'd like to discuss the role audio can play for your brand or want to create an audio asset such as a brand anthem or audio logo, you can reach us via eardrum.com. We'll also find numerous examples of our award-winning work. Thanks for listening. Next, Viv and I chat to Trinity P3's founder, Darren Woolley. Darren Woolley has been running marketing management consultants Trinity P3 for just over 20 years now. So he's uniquely placed to understand what's going on in the spot where marketing agencies meet their brands. Darren, have you ever known a time like this? Tim, it's unprecedented, but I'm not sure that's the right word, is it? Uh, It's a very, very popular word. (laughs) It's overused, but I think, uh, I don't think anyone living has ever been through something like this. So um, how are you seeing the world through that lens then? How is it just changing the way you see uh, marketers and brands behave? I th- I'm seeing people totally having to re-pivot. Things that were talked about previously, like remote working, is now reality. People are, are often responding in fear by shutting down everything that they've been doing. Uh, there's huge focus on keeping their teams very positive and connected. You know, all of the things that people talk about but never had time to do before seem to have come to the forefront. And I'm wondering how long that's going to survive once the lockdown's over. And you you talk about what they are doing. Um, What should they be doing? Look, there's a lot of discussion about this. And, you know, of course, the industry is saying, keep advertising, keep advertising. But, you know, it takes money to advertise. And a lot of companies have seen cash flow reduced to virtually zero in almost a week or two. You know, I've spoken to companies where their sales have just completely disappeared. Where are there other categories where, you know, if you're in the toilet paper manufacturing or food manufacturing or supermarkets, you're having a boon and you're probably thinking, well, I don't need to advertise because people are beating the door to my uh, path to my door. So I think it really comes down to the individual companies. The first thing you have to do is make sure you're going to survive this. 
Secondly, is then start planning for how is life going to look during and immediately after that. And that's going to vary from company to company and category to category. Darren, you mentioned that now is a time that brands and companies might start realising some of the things they should have been doing before COVID-19, you know, be better set up for working from home, have a better team culture, be more flexible. I imagine that some brands in a time like this might find that actually they're not that happy with their agencies. They might sort of start seeing cracks to appear in the relationship. They might not be happy with the limited activity that they can do. But is this the right time to be pitching or changing anything or should everyone just bunker down and wait for 2020 to be over? Look, uh, that's a terrific uh, question and observation because in actual fact, it's probably not the right time to be making major changes like that. Um, But in fact, we're getting a lot of inquiries about running a pitch and how it can be done. I'm not sure they're going to run them in the next two weeks, but certainly people are thinking about it. And I think what we're going to see is another pitch palooza coming out of the back end of this because people have got a lot of time on their hands working from home and they're also incredibly frustrated. We've been doing a weekly poll of our uh, clients and agencies. And in actual fact, the agencies seem to be in overdrive trying to make their clients happy and do everything that they want to do. But the clients are the ones that are actually finding there's cracks in the system because they don't no longer have the support that they traditionally had. So it's a bit like we're going to see a lot of relationships break up when lockdown ends. You think that agencies and brands might sort of have a mass breakup once we're all allowed outside again? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a meme going around that uh, these lockdowns are actually causing marital discord or relationship (laughs) discord. I think that's going to extend into business as well. I hope it doesn't become violent. I think there's no reason for violence. But, uh, you know, I I certainly think there's people uh, considering uh, questioning or or, uh, reinventing their relationships post this. I'm not sure it's something that you should ever rush into. But if they're considering it, we need to be aware of it. So if brands were to run a pitch in these circumstances, how do they actually go about it when clearly agencies can't present face-to-face? Well, we've actually been running the back end of a couple of pitches that started off before the lockdown and now have to quickly adapt and pivot. And it is actually possible. It is possible using video conferencing, you know, the Zooms and the Microsoft Teams and the like are getting a heavy usage, but it requires a total rethink. It's not just doing the same process that you did before and just bring technology into the room. You actually have to rethink the process, break it down into smaller parts. You know, I don't think anyone could possibly put their hand up for a three-hour presentation on Zoom, could you? So what we're doing is breaking that down into smaller meetings and more of them as a way of the advertisers and marketers getting a good opportunity to really understand the agency team. And how important must the personality and presenting skills be now when it comes to doing it online? Because 
so much of pitch activity is that hyped personality and the culture and what you can bring to the table and build the excitement in the room. That's difficult with Australia's shitty internet and with various people on a Zoom call. So how much have they had to adapt and shift to try and bring that across via a screen? Yeah, uh, first of all, I think the NBN has a lot to uh, answer for. Um, But, yes, it it, it requires a different thing, Viv. It requires the agencies to be more disciplined, to actually communicate one-to-one. You know, one of the mistakes that we see is that they'll jump onto Zoom and they'll go into presenter mode so that the audience, their client that they're trying to influence, is only seeing a PowerPoint screen. What you should be using is this face-to-face communication. You know, you want to see people. And even if I'm looking at something that looks like the Brady Bunch with nine people on my screen, including me, at least it's possible to set up a connection and a a human connection and and start a relationship even through Zoom. I think that's what people are learning is that technology can still be used, but it has to be used differently. You know, one of the big mistakes that we see is where the agency will all sit in their boardroom and stick the camera at one end of the room and you see some people off in the distance that look like little ants and then people up in the foreground that are leaning in so that they're in shot. And it just, it's impossible to set up any sort of connection. Doing it as individuals on the screen in little boxes is much more interesting and more likely to make me feel like I'm talking to someone rather than an empty room full of people. And how are the media owners surviving this? Certainly our take is they're probably having the toughest time of the lot at the moment. Oh, uh, all I'm hearing is, and and reading, is seeing that uh, many local media are actually going under. You know, they were already getting by by the skin of their teeth. And now suddenly they're... um, the media dollars are drying up and they're going into only a handful of channels. So the cash flows just disappeared. You know, we're reading all the time, especially uh, regional Australia, there's a lot of media owners that have actually closed, you know, places that have been open for over a century, providing news to their local communities, just can't afford to do that anymore. And uh, even the larger media owners are really struggling. I think this has come at the worst possible time. On top of that, we're even seeing advertisers that are blocking COVID-19 or coronavirus in their digital advertising. So, you know, the biggest stories, they don't want their brands associated with. So there's a whole lot of advertising dollars that are going missing. Yeah, Darren, you've actually just flagged my next question, which was about the Interactive Advertising Bureau coming out along with the media owners, sort of begging brands and agencies to stop using such generalised blacklisting terms, you know, they're blocking ads from anything that says crisis or COVID or coronavirus, but surely that's where all the eyeballs are. So while brands don't want to be insensitive and tone deaf, audiences are on those news stories more than ever. So why wouldn't you want your ad there? And and it's a good point, Viv, um, except that brands are so worried about looking like that they're Uh, taking advantage of the situation, you know. And that's why we've seen a lot of brands that are out selling, walking off the shelves, you know, and not advertising 
You don't have to because people are buying you know, goods and services that they need to exist in day-to-day life. So they're not advertising. Others don't want to be seen to be jumping on the bandwagon. I, look, I understand that, but you're right. If you want to reach an audience, you have to go where the audience is. And the number one story globally is COVID-19 and wanting to know what's happening. And Darren, I suppose, yeah, I find myself thinking there are so many banks at the moment, all with those here to help messages. Obviously, we're seeing the supermarkets with their, you know, the, the kind of the messages about, you know, please don't be nasty to our staff, etc. Um, let me put this brand exchange that I, I received as a consumer over the last few hours. So this was on Messenger. Don't remember signing up for this, but maybe I did. I, I got, I think, my first ever message from Ribs and Burgers. This was yesterday, 3.25, as we were recording. Hey, Tim, how can we help? Question mark. (laughs) So I I kind of puzzled at that for an hour or two. And then I replied, I don't know. What have you got in mind? Question mark. And then about um, 14 hours later, they replied, burger? Question mark. Um, (laughs) And and that's the end of the exchange thus far. Um, what what's your as as, as somebody who watches brands doing marketing? What, what what's your take on that little consumer interaction in the time of COVID? Look, there's been a couple of things that have really annoyed me. That's one of them: is people suddenly jumping on this to say, "How can we help?" You know, when you've had no relationship, really, you may have signed up, as you say, once you gave your. Uh, phone number or your email address um, but yeah, then suddenly it's coming out of the blue. I got hundreds of emails from companies all around the world telling me how they were putting their uh, staff and their customers first but the, there's other things that are happening you know in a world of technology and automation I'm still getting emails from companies trying to sell me holidays. I'm not going anywhere at the moment. I've got uh, airlines sending me updates on my um a frequent flyer status uh, and how many points I've got and where could I possibly travel. Uh, you know, so I think there's a whole lot of things that people have overlooked you know, in this suddenly shutting down and, and where, how we're going to survive this. They've forgotten to turn off all the things that are inappropriate. Then there's other companies that are immediately jumping on the bandwagon and saying, well, this is our opportunity to offer help. And they're doing it in the most... Uh, ham-fisted way possible now you mentioned the airlines you are a frequent flyer you've got a a global business um how do you think the airlines have actually handled things as brands during this situation look i think uh the airlines in australia have generally handled this quite well you know they've they've done the steps they've been very open in communicating the fact that they've had to reduce the number of flights, they've had to lay off staff. I think there's been quite a a good communication to customers around preserving the business. I think there's an interesting political game that's going on between Virgin Australia and Qantas, and it'll be interesting to see if Virgin Australia survives this because Qantas is saying we've set ourselves up to survive this, whereas Virgin has gone to the government cap in hand asking for $1.4 billion to which Alan Joyce has turned around and said, if you're going to give them money, you have to give us money to keep a level playing field. It's a very interesting political game that's being played out there. 
And Qantas were obviously setting themselves up for their 100th anniversary celebrations. They'd already just begun to get that message out. Now, clearly, they've completely dumped that message. I've not seen them say anything about it. Is that the right thing to, to do? Should they just not talk about their centenary year until we get to the other side of the crisis? I would imagine they're sitting there looking at how can they back end this year with po- associating that with positive news. I think saying it's 100 years that we've been serving the Australian public at this time would fall pretty much on deaf ears, especially when you've had to stand down so many staff. And so how will this change long-term brand behaviour then? I mean, this situation has evolved so rapidly over the past three or four months and we don't sort of seem to know how or when we're going to emerge. So it must be really difficult for brands to plan for the other side when we don't know what the other side looks like or when that will be. Except that uh, there's an opportunity to create your future. You know, as I said uh, earlier, you know, the first step is to secure the business. Make sure that you maintain any cash in the business so that you can meet your debts and, and keep trading or keep staying in business. But then once you've secured that, the next step is to start planning for what will the future look like. And that's going to vary. It's going to be incredibly complex and difficult for people to work out. But over time, we'll start to see that evolve. You know, it'll be interesting to see if this goes on for three or four months, will people go back to jumping on planes for a one-hour meeting interstate? Or will we get so used to using the technology that's available to us, it will finally become the way of doing a meeting rather than, you know, flying everywhere to have these meetings. For myself, you know, I'm already finding that doing all of my weekly meetings by Zoom or or, uh, or Microsoft Teams or whatever is becoming quite effective and everyone's getting used to doing that. So perhaps that's going to decrease the amount of travel, business travel that's happening after this. Depends how long it lasts. And just finally, Darren, I'm In the long term, how do you think the agency landscape is going to be reshaped by all of this? It's a a good question, but it's a really tough question. Um, We are going to see some agencies fail because they are going to either not be able to continue trading, especially the smaller agencies. I think this has been a hit to the major listed, publicly listed agencies that they may struggle to recover from when we come out the other side. I think, though, that agencies have an incredible ability to adapt, and we're already seeing that. You know, we're seeing agencies pivoting immediately to what their clients need. So while the, let's say, 12-month view is that no one's going to have a lot of money to spend coming out of this, I think agencies may be downsizing, but they'll continue to find ways to meet the needs of their clients and I think therefore secure their future. But I don't think everyone's going to get through. How about the relationship between clients and agency and the financial part of it? Are they just trying to spend less money? Well, a lot of uh, marketers are now finding themselves with a request from the CEO or CFO to cut their marketing budgets. You know, this is a way of keeping cash in the business. So the first thing they're doing is turning to their agencies and saying, I'm going to have 30%, 40%, 50% less money. What can we and can't we do? 
And traditionally, the agencies have always come to the party. We saw it back during the global financial crisis, where agencies were often taking on a 30% cut in their fees and still doing the same amount of work. My fear is if they do that again, they're not going to be able to come out the other side in in good financial health. Because what that says is while it's a good thing to do for your client to help them, it's not putting the pressure on the client to say, if you want to pay less, you have to do less. You can't have us doing more and paying us less. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the agencies respond to that. Darren, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's about it for today. All of the analysis in today's Mumbrella cast is brought to you by Budget Direct. Budget Direct encourages everyone to stay safe and positive during this challenging time. Rest assured, via their advanced work-from-home capabilities, Budget Direct already has everything in place to look after their customers' insurance needs at this time. Have a great Easter at home. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Toodle pip. Toodle pip.